Aloha kaku. Riches today here, my friends. You're meeting the esteemed Noah Emmett Aluli, physician, former medical director at Molokai General Hospital, where he spent his career. Activist, thinker, a man who lived in a Hawaiian way. This interview was done in February 2022. Emmett passed late in November. He's joined here by his life partner, Daviana McGregor, UH Manoa Ethnic Studies professor and member of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana. We spoke on the occasion of an exhibition of Kaho'olawe photographs by Franco Samaragi. Franco captured images from many trips to the target island in the company of activists like Aluli and McGregor. They were trying to stop the Navy's bombing of the island. Franco paints a ragtag picture of this early, perhaps not quite legal, occupation of the island, which was still being used as a live target. It started with a misconnection at Waikapu on Maui. Seems his contacts failed to show as activists gathered around him in the pre-dawn darkness. The boat that they were on failed on the way from Hilo to Maui. So okay, there so- I was. And nobody knew me, and they thought I was the FBI who was there because this was, you know, it was right after Emmett and Walter and them got arrested. So there I was, and one guy came up to me and uh, says, oh, I, I heard about your, your name, your Samoiragi. He says, I was in the uh, armed forces in Italy. And so he started talking to me. And he's the guy who really just kind of took me under his wing and said I was okay. Greg, Lynn, my wife. So that was it. Anyway, I thought I was going to die. I was so sick on the boat. And we finally got to Kaholave and I could not stand up. And somebody walked up to me on the sailboat and says, if you want to go in there, you're going to have to jump into the water now. And I said, well, I can't get up. I said, well, I can roll you off. I said, okay. So they rolled me off the boat, threw me an in, an in, you know, a, a tube, and they threw my cameras in. So the waves put us into the, uh, the beach. And the last few feet you get there, the wave came and it just threw me on the beach head first. <laughs> I looked over and the black bag with my cameras got onto the beach. I took them out and made sure everything was dry, put film in. And I looked up and that photograph of Auntie Emma DeFries sitting on the beach, that was the first thing I saw. Talk to me about what it's like taking landscape photographs on Kaho'olawe. Is it remarkable at all? Or... Oh, well, yeah. You've got Haleakala in the background all the time, the moonrise over Haleakala. It's like going out to the end of the road on the North Shore when you go around the corner, you know, and it's all dry and there's Yeah, it's like that in a sense, except for all those bombs that have fallen and really messed things up and caused a lot of erosion. I mean, we lost feet of dirt. And there's all these photographs I've made of big stones, huge stones. They fall on top of each other 
as the earth is being washed away because of the bombs and wind and everything. Photographing the um, Oahu is just, it's amazing. Can you see any bombs? What bombs? Oh, the bombs. Oh, I could show you photographs. They were bombing the, the island for, what, 40 years? I know, but they were removing bombs for a number no, of years no, as well. No, no, the bombs all just stayed there. Emmett, he's telling me now that they left all the bombs there. No, seriously. And some of them were alive still. And you had to be careful where you walked over there. In the 70s? No, even now, there's certain areas, even though the Navy gave them $40 million to clean it, there still are places you have to be careful. Emmett can tell you all about that. He's, he's been everywhere over there. Oh, I think David's got the best history. David, you want to jump in? Yeah, well, um, I remember that in around December of the 1975, I got a call from Charles Maxwell, who was at the time the head of Aloha Organization, which was Aboriginal lands of Hawaiian ancestry. And they had introduced a bill in Congress for the United States to give and pay reparations to the Native Hawaiians for the role of the United States in the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. And this bill was inspired by um, uh, Louisa Rice here on Molokai. And she had relatives in Alaska who were part of the Cook Inlet Regional Corporation. So they had the experience of where Alaskans got uh, their self-determination recognized and set up um, independent corporations, native corporations. Anyway, they were sponsoring this bill, helping sponsor the bill with Aloha, but it was getting nowhere in Congress. And so I remember Charlie said, we're gonna occupy some federal land. We're gonna draw attention to the plight of native Hawaiians. Um, we have to show them they are not, you know, just happy Hawaiians playing music on the beach for tourists. We have to show them we have real problems and that we have to have our own wounded knee. Wounded knee had just happened where, I know, on the Lakota reservation where the uh, Native Americans had occupied and went up against the US military. And finally, the Indian Self-Determination Act was passed. So they were looking at something to really draw national attention to the conditions of Native Hawaiians, where we were the highest incarcerated, we were the, had the most critical health needs. We were highest on welfare. We had the most families proportionately on the poverty level in the 1970s. So uh, this was the, the, the goal was to draw national attention to this. And then I got the call back in January, but I wasn't able to go uh, but he said it was going to be, you know, show up on on Maui. They, were, they had decided it was going to be Koholawe that they would occupy uh, and get this national attention on the needs of Native Hawaiians and why the U.S. should pay reparations. Oh, my gosh. That was such a strategic pivot and strategically good move to choose the target island for that occupation. Um, but then actually to do it, I mean, people today think, oh, it must have been less dangerous in those days or something like that. It was somehow easier. Was it? No. 
So, so, so what it was, it must have been like hundreds of, of boat, I mean, people on boats, mostly fishing boats um, that showed up, but it was more like, um, oh, the news break early that there was that occupation for the headlines. And so, when when, know, when, every, when was this exactly? This was 1976? Yeah, in, the, in January. In January, huh. So that and, would have been right before I was gathered at, January 3rd at Ma'alaya, I believe, a oh, white couple gather at white couple on January 3rd. And they were going to go over January 4th, but someone leaked it, made a press statement. And so the morning, the Coast Guard showed up. And so confiscation of, of fishing boats was the issue. And um, we were fortunate enough to know some, some folks who had could outdo the um, the Coast Guard in their kind of like ratins. Well, wait a minute. There were hundreds of boats there, you're saying? Uh, about hundred people, about 50 boats, I'm not sure. They were coming from every every island, Big Island, Lanai, Molokai, mostly the Maui fishermen. And we don't know, we never took account of how many people were there ready to occupy the island. But because conversation was a big problem, they would confiscate the boats. Everybody kind of like left, except one boat picked up some of us who were committed to land. And there were nine of us, including George Helm, that made it to the island. And it was just two of us, me and Walter Riddy, who when the Coast Guard came to take everybody off, decided now we're gonna split from the group and we're gonna explore and see what's on the island. So we broke out and, and so the original nine, six of them, George Helm left earlier, six of them were arrested and charged with a, um, a no re-entry you know, order. And so that just started the publicity that just started the movement that just started you know, not just what we're talking about is reparations or restitution, but to stop the bombing because what Walter and I had saw was just a devastation of an island, of the land, of the ocean, that's so unacceptable um, in any kind of like uh, mind, um, you know, that, that uh, needed to be stopped, needed to stop the bombing because of that. You and Walter stayed on the island for two days. What did two days? What did you see? The worst devastation we've ever seen. All the bays were all muddy. You could just see the all like bloody, muddy. You couldn't see any kind of clean water around the island. The pollution of all the ordnance, unexploded and exploded. You know, goats. Um, there must have been a population of about forty thousand goats. There was nothing growing on the island. It was really, really quite bad. Could you see bombs? Yeah, oh yeah, all over, all over. And, and so that just started the, the movement, hey, we gotta stop the bombing. And then the subsequent formation of the Protect Koalave, Ohana, and the, the motive, the reason 
was something that George Helm picked up in his research, Aloha Aina. We're there for Aloha Aina. Aloha Aina, we kind of like was the reason, you know, for the formation and the protection and the end of the bombing. So that became our slogan, Aloha Aina. And it wasn't- What, used... what did you mean? I, what did you mean by that? Talk love, about... love of the land. Take care of the land, the land's gonna take care of you. But it was also the movement way back against annexation where folks like Joseph Navahi and his group and his newspaper called Aloha Aina went to get all the signatures for the Kui petition. And so that was kind of like, that was part of the continuation of the work, Aloha Aina. And you see how Aloha Aina is really spread across, you know, all the projects, programs for Native Hawaiian, you know, back to the land kind of movements. So, 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 so that was, that was the occupation in January. And, and so what we started talking about, and I, was the next, not occupation, but the next access to Koholawe, legal access, was what um, is featured in the exhibit that Frank, uh, Franco was fortunate enough, or we were fortunate enough to have him document. And um, I heard uh, Franco was talking about all that wonderful experiences and pictures and, and that really sets the stage of what we're been doing and what we hope to connect with um, in the 40, what, six years of the movement. You were talking, Diviana, about, you know, the, what communication was like at that time and when we, we had to post photographs on the backs of trucks, you know what I mean? So how did this movement spread? How, how what was going on at the time that, that uh, this movement could catch on? You know, I think it was uh, the Vietnam War was, I think it was maybe beginning to wind down and some of the veterans were coming back and a lot of the veterans did get involved in the, in the movement because they saw that they had given their lives, they had seen the lives of, you know, their brothers or, you know, their others from Hawaii lives lost for a war that no one could really understand the purpose of it, except, you know, for, for capitalism and, and the, as we called it back then, the industrial um, capitalist. Uh, so right, the military industrial complex. Military industrial complex, yes. And so, you know, why it reverberated to say, well, we went to give our lives to, for democracy and yet our religion is being desecrated. Our lands are being desecrated. That sort of sparked a, a, a chord with everybody. But I think it was after 10 years of unprecedented growth also with statehood, 69, and then getting into the 70s, you saw all this growth and you, not, you didn't see anything that was being done for the people. It was all, people were making profits, but the burden of the development was being carried by the Native Hawaiians and the working people, people who were being evicted to make way for 
housing developments that people couldn't afford to live in. You know, the, uh, in 1970, 80% of the people couldn't afford to buy a home in Hawaii. And yet they continued evicting people to build more expensive houses that people couldn't afford to live in. So we were getting fed up, you know, it was like, what, what is this, uh, at what price does progress come? And what good has it been for Hawaii to be part of the United States? It's only brought more investment and more development and destruction of our way of life that we valued so, so, so much. And we mm. saw the military as playing a critical role in reinforcing that. So I think people saw that time to do something to challenge the military, challenge this uh, abuse of the lands, abuse of Native Hawaiians. There were those struggles, land struggles at Sand Island, Kalama Valley, struggles over water, Waiahole, just trying to follow their threads up to the present, you know? But um, no, this was really the first time that people had stood up against the U.S. military. You know, there was all that blackout time where, where our parents experienced that anger uh, with the bombing and, and all those times and all that was happening to local people, but nobody stood up 30 years after that. And we stand up. Wait, now, did we sit down? <laughs> I mean, and you're saying oh. we're, we're going to stand up again here now? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got to stand up. But, you know, well, understanding how the military works is just really pathetic, pathetically. At that time, they said, Ko'olave, or we'll pull out a Pearl Harbor. That was a blackmail. If we don't have Ko'olave to bomb, pull out of Pearl Harbor. Everybody said, yay, but you know, all the rank and file Hawaiians and everybody else said, oh no, that's our bread and butter. You know, so it was, it was just defining, explaining the issue of land as being our ancestor. And we are here to take care of the land and just bring the whole philosophy of Aloha back into our lives. And it, it kind of like, it, it kind of caught, it really caught because our generation were taught by our kapuna in the same kind of principles, not through the language, but just the principles of land and the nature of land as our ancestors, you know, you know. So there was just that whole kind of identity that we are of this land, we're responsible for this land, we need to protect this land, and we need to kind of do the work. So that's just kind of like naturally took off, as you were asking, you know, we're, <laughs> I say we're fungal and bacterial, those, now we're virus nowadays, and how inflammation <laughs> gets off. You mean, in the ability to, you think, so you think, um, some of those threads, the way, the ways of some of those threads of ways of thinking about the military and maybe occupation of Hawaii, did they get lost somewhere after the seventies? Uh, and then, and then you think those threads somehow are coming back? <laughs> was kind of like all we had to do was blow on the cinders to ignite that fire. 
this was what uh, Davy was talking about, that post-Vietnam kind of like how the Native Americans were doing, how people were struggling and needed somebody just to blow on those cinders, to ignite that fire, and Kohlavi did that. And it's continued. I, what Emmett was talking about was that during World War II and after, when our, the lands, when the military condemned lands like at Makua and condemned lands at Lualuale and lands were taken and we weren't able to do anything. And then he's saying, but in the 70s, we stood up finally and challenged the lands that were, were taken from us by the military. But, you know, the military took Lualuale out of Hawaiian homelands. They took Nohili and Kauai out of Hawaiian homelands. They condemned Makua and evicted people, and they would never let people move back. They condemned Waikani Valley. And all that was in the war in the, in the name of protecting Hawaii from the Japanese invasion. So people didn't say anything. But finally, in the 70s, people start, stood up and started challenging the military. And it's continued. I don't, it hasn't stopped. You know, people from, from Koholawe have been challenging Makua, the, the, um, the, you know, the Waianae people organized to try to reclaim Makua, and they at least have access to the island, and they have certain conditions they've placed. I mean, the military's had to start a whole um, natural uh, uh, conservation program in the mountains, in the Waianae Mountains just to justify their continued use at Makua because of the protection of the endangered um, Hawaiian snail. What, so how do you, what, what was the resolution at, on Kaho'olawe? The Kaho'olawe Island Reserve Commission was created to try to um, guide the respond, the final actions of the Navy. Was that their purpose? I'm, I'm trying to figure out what eventually happened to a responsibility for and care of Kaho'olawe. In 1990, in order to get Pat Saiki, try to get Pat Saiki elected to Congress, um, President Bush stopped the bombing of the island. He ordered all military live fire ordnance training to stop on the island in October 22 of 1990. And then, uh, Pat Psyche didn't get elected, but Senator Akaka and Senator Inouye had set up a, a conveyance commission to study what to be, was to be done with the island. Should it go back to the military or should it, what else could it be used for? And then there was a study, um, Emmett was on that Koholawe Island Conveyance Commission, and there was appropriated $400 million to clean up the island, to restore it as a cultural, Native Hawaiian cultural treasure. Um, a culture reserve. Fortunately, uh, Senator Inouye at the time with Auntie Frenchie DeSoto also being part of the Conveyance Commission realized that if we didn't get the island back, we would never, um, be, before the cleanup, we would never get it back because they, in every other instance in throughout the continent and Pacific Islands, once they do a cleanup, they always say, oh, it, we can't clean up enough, it'll still be a liability. We have to just use it as a bird sanctuary or some kind of reserve land, but we cannot let people come onto the land. So fortunately, they they determined, this, and Governor Waihei at the time, that we need to get the island back even before the cleanup starts. So the island was turned over back to Hawaii 
in May of 1994, and then began a 10-year cleanup with $400 million. And they were supposed to, through an agreement with the state, clean up 30% of the island to a depth of four feet and 100% of the surface. But in the end, they only cleaned up 9% of the island to a depth of four feet and another 68% surface. So there's 23% of the island that's not been cleaned at all. And there, as I, Franco was saying when we came on, you could, there's still bombs right there on the land. You can see it. It's not, there's no surface clearance. You just see the, the unexploded ordnance and it's live, um, but on 23% of the land. But 77% has been cleared surface. And of that 9% has been cleared to a depth of four feet. And so at the end of it, they said, oh, we're 90% sure that we got 80% of the ordinance and we're saying my goodness why you know you can't say 100 100 in the nine percent cleared and we knew at that time i say wow if we didn't have the island back we would never have gotten it back yeah well, so, so knowing what happens is is important and how we're able to kind of like leverage build upon this movement you know, and I know that's one of your questions. So after the um, occupations with the Koalavi Nine and then another visit with Walter, his wife, his sister, and myself, uh, George Helm was working on um, an axis in February of 76 that would involve cleansing of um, all that Pilikia from, from all the generations of, of people who lived there, but to ask permission for us to kind of come to the island to restore the island and stop the bombing. And, and that's what Franco has documented in February, 1976, the very first legal access. So time goes on because George always knew and so did we, um, that more people can visit the island that have the same spirit. And, and that was the whole thing. Our, our role was to kind of like um, be able to get more and more people to the island so they could kind of like build upon that infrastructure and hope and dreams and activism to kind of end the bombing. But before George disappeared, he filed a, a civil suit. And the civil suit was, was kind of like make sure the Navy did an environmental impact statement for all their bombing activities, make sure that marine mammals were protected, make sure there was an archeological historic site survey, make sure there was endangered species survey, make sure there was a marine mammals kind of like protection act, you know, all these new acts, but make sure that Native Hawaiians have the rights of access to the island for religious purposes. That was all First Amendment. And George was so insightful then. Um, so, so what happens is, is okay. Wait, so could I ask, could, could you talk about that, that, 
that landing on the island in 1977, uh, George Helm and Kimo Mitchell? Um, it was a tragic landing. I mean, that's when we decided, people in the Ohana, that illegal occupations is too risky. Too risky. I mean, he went, he went there to kind of like tell those who were occupying the island that their occupation was no longer working because the Navy continued to bomb. And there's a whole mystery of what happened that has not been settled between families, members, what happened to George? Did he just kind of like get eaten by the sharks as he tried to kind of like leave the island in some rough conditions on a surfboard with Kimo Mitchell, his cousin? Did they make it to Molokini or did the sharks get him? Or, or George Helm was so politically involved with development, especially on the McKenna side, because water was his specialty. So what was it? I mean, so that thing has never come to an understanding, you know, what happened to George? And there's, you know, still that question. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll find that out one day, but. But after that, we decided that we, we just can't risk any more lives in occupation. So we, we moved forward on George's civil suit. And in organizing for the civil suit came the negotiations with the Navy. Here we got like, you know, folks like Skylark, you know, organizing. All of us, yeah, you know, getting together to talk story on what are our conditions in negotiations with the Navy. And we were so far apart in what we proposed and what the Navy was going to accept. You know, as you look at it now, uh, yep. what what happened? How did this, how did the Navy return the island? So, so you, know how, you know how political, um, our judiciary system is and was way back then. They had to bring in um, Ninth Circuit Court from California. So they brought in a judge and he said, okay, you come up with a consent decree. And the consent decree wasn't bad, allows us access to the island, you know, 10 months a year, about 45 people, four days a month. Um, there is a, a condition that you get rid of all the goats also to involve the Ohana conservation programs, also to move all the targets 300 feet away from the shoreline to protect the whales and monk seals and everything else. Also to do environmental kind of like uh, surveys and archeological restoration. But the important thing is to allow the Ohana onto Ko'olawe for religious purposes. And that was the main thing for George to establish the Makihiki on Kohlabi. And that was something that Auntie Edith Kanakaoli had told us, you go to Kohlabi to establish the Makihiki. That's your, your rights, that's what you gotta do. 
anti-attitude as that. Nalani Kanaka only wrote the protocol, wrote the chant. In 1981, we opened and closed the first Makahiki that simply put, caused Lono to bring his winds, to gather the clouds over Kaolave, to bring the rain, to green the land, to raise the water table. At the same time, to green ourselves, to continue to struggle or be successful. And so all that works. And we know that because the politicians are kind of like seeing us. Pat Psyche first with DG Andy Anderson, her campaign manager, to kind of look at, we're not just a Hawaiian movement, we're environmental movement. And so we built, even in the Pacific Island, we built a whole movement that can really brag about the organizational skills of our ohana so that we're able to go where Davy kind of like comes in and have the bombing kind of like uh, 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 to where we are today with with what Kirk's role and setting Kirk up. The Kaholawe Island yeah. Reserve Commission. But but so the, the, the axis in February 1976 is the first step. The first or second legal axis before our consent decree where we brought kupuna and cultural practitioners so they can look at the areas that we've not been able to see and be able to understand it and put down programs so that we could restore those different areas. And the third axis was six Makahiki axis. And now we're celebrating uh, the closure of our 40th anniversary. You know, we always say what was the, the Ohana, if we feel most proud about reviving our Hawaiian spiritual beliefs and practices and um, reviving the Makahiki, but also all the other practices in partnership, as I said, with the Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation. It really is a reverence for land and a, a practice of stewardship for the, the land and the resources, including water, essential. And we really saw that come to full circle with the Mauna Kea movement because it was at the forefront. It was prayerful, uh, led by those who were saw themselves as protectors of the sacred space and who always conducted themselves with this kapu of aloha. And this kapu of aloha was what we had learned on Kaholave through the Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation also that um, when we, we had a ceremony uh, at the end of the Koalabi Island Conveyance Commission work for two years before they were going to give their report to Congress, Auntie Frenchie DeSoto said, let's organize a healing ceremony and let's bring together all of the key decision makers from Hawaii and get a commitment from them that they're going to do whatever they can in their power to protect Koalabi and to make it safe. And so there was this healing ceremony, but the morning of that ceremony, we opened with Eala A, which today everybody does, but Eala A was that chant to call up the sun from the ocean to start the day, was first done there on Koholabe and was composed by Pulani Kanakaole Kanahele. And then we all did a, a cleansing. And when we came out from the ocean and cleansing, 
Harley Kanaka Oli said, we now have a kapu of aloha for the whole day because here we were bringing, you know, decision makers who had done nothing to stop the bombing for years, but now they were coming and we were asking them to take a stand for the island. And so he wanted each of us, when we came and they came and we greeted them, and the whole time we spent with them on the island, we would all practice this kapu of aloha. And so, you know, we had Senator Inouye, we had Congressman Abercrombie, we had Governor Waihe'e, we had all the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, someone representing Patsy Mink, um, Danny Akaka Jr. for his dad, and Kupuna from every island. We had a ceremony of ava, and every when they drank that cup of ava, they made a commitment that they would do what they could in their power to protect Koholawe and stop the military use of the island. And you know, each of them came through. They did it. And this idea of Kapualoha and approaching our protection of the land with reverence for the land and for ourselves and for even our those who are opposing us is really important. And we saw that very much at the forefront of the Mauna Kea movement as well. You know, already with Red Hill, there have been ceremonies to call upon the gods, the Akua, to also help protect the precious water of Oahu from contamination of the Navy. So we weren't just Kohlabi, we are just kind of like an organization that, that that looked at those areas that you know were impacting us also, yeah. I just want to say that that's part of what, you know, movement that goes on. Um, David was talking about Cam and we're talking about Red Hill. Um, you know, all that kind of work that, that brings that Aloha to the surface uh, that we pay attention to. But anyway, it, it's kind of like um, important that um, we understand that that whole value of the Ohana that continues till today and moving forward. You know, Davey, is there such a thing as a Hawaiian Renaissance? Was there? Is there? Oh, definitely, yes. <laughs> I think, you know, we look at how the Hawaiian language was um, being lost. 1980, there was an article in Honolulu Magazine that said there were only 2,000 speakers of Hawaiian. And of those, only 30 were under the age of five. So we were looking at the loss of our language. And, you know, we were looking at the loss of our culture. And when Ko'olawe happened and made the connection to our religion and our spiritual soul as a collective soul as a Hawaiian people this really again sparked the interest and at the same time that we were fighting to stop the bombing and recognize the practice of Aloha Aina the Hokulea was organizing to revive and have recognized Hawaiian navigational arts and then the whole movement for Hawaiian language started at the same time to start with the Punana Leo, the preschools, and then building into the Kulakaya Puni and the Hawaiian language immersion classes. Uh, the 1978 Constitutional Convention made it possible for our language to be again the medium of instruction in the schools by 
making Hawaiian um, one of the two official languages for the state. And the Hawaiian Constitution Convention in 1978 in itself was part of that peaking of the Renaissance in that it also made the teaching of uh, Hawaiian history and culture part of the educational program. It recognized Native Hawaiian rights. It set up the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and it um, said that Native Hawaiians are one of the two beneficiaries for the Ceded Public Lands Trust. So the, the Constitutional Convention was critical as um, representing this move of Native Hawaiians to reclaim our culture, our lands, our language, and to also be pivotal in promoting that to the next level. It was an amazing time. Do you think it was in a unique time? <laughs> Do you think that understanding persists? I think it is a new time. Um, and, you know, I think it goes in peaks and waves. Things can be calm and then all of a sudden things click. We saw that with um, the proposal to build the 30 meter telescope at Mauna Kea. When the early days when people were talking about it, I remember going to a rally at the Capitol against TMT. There were only like five of us. And the next Next year, you know, there are thousands on the mountain to protect the sacredness of Mauna Awakea and to stop the development of the 30 meter telescope. And the, the, the movement is being led as religious protocol. And, and at the forefront are the Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation, who is our other partner in reviving the whole religious practices on Koholawe. The Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation, as Emma was saying, Auntie Edith Kanaka Ole and Nalani Kanaka Ole gave us the Makahiki protocols, and they continued to give us the protocols for calling our gods back into our lives. And they were important in providing the protocols that uh, people gathered together three times a day on Mauna Kea to practice and to honor and call in the same Akua to. Um, protect Mauna Awakea. So this growth of the religion has also been an integral part of the whole Renaissance, bringing us to today. So, so Noe, the also important thing that I recall is because of the Ohana, that we call ourselves the Ohana, all the, a lot of many, most kupunas came out to kind of like advise us. They were so excited because what they experienced, the loss of the culture and the inability to kind of like transfer it down to our generation and to the next generation was something that was excited them because they saw that this is an opportunity for the culture to continue and grow. And so all the younger Ohana generation working with the Kupuna in their communities, in their families, was amazing to kind of inspire that knowledge that, that came through and confirmed what they learned limitedly from their own kapuna. But it was just, it was a movement. This was huh. amazing, a generational movement. It was just kind of so nice to be a part of. And, and you know, Franco has documented all that. To feel a part of that movement. I mean, because it was, it was against a really large entity the military, one of the best things I've heard, I've learned today is how your organization runs. 
<laughs> just take care of it, you know, and people just do what's needed to be done. Uh, I guess it works. Well, certainly it works, Noe, because it's our generation and the next generation that's being trained and just committed and to see it in the, the generation to come. So it's, a, it's an Ohana family, family, family thing that just kind of like easily put, nicely put, Hawaiian put, to see that family responsibility and not taking credit, you know, like, like how a lot of movements and leaders show up and it's for them to kind of like empower. It's just kind of like a humble, a humble family that does their homework. That's the most important thing. We do our homework. We just don't balao, we just don't talk stuff, we just don't carry on conversation, but we do our homework. This is how Mary Monarch has run for so many years. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor. It's so much fun to talk to you today. Thank you so very much. So, so, no, um, you're so, it's so easy to talk with. <laughs> oh man, you guys are. Okay, the sun is setting. <laughs> Staying in touch, okay? In touch, always. Mahalo to photographer Franco Somaragi for the indelible images of people working together. Mahalo, Deviana. We're all thinking about Emmett together. A toast to the messages contained in a life so well lived. Until soon, ahui ho. Much aloha. <laughs>